Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week, it's time for us to reach for the stars. It's episode 317 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, we're going to be talking about DC's Stargirl this week, but we're going to be talking to one of the villains of the show, the Dragon King himself. Nelson Lee is going to join me to talk about what to expect when we see the Dragon King in episode 4 of Stargirl. But I know that you're excited about the premiere. I wanted to make sure I got him on really, really quickly to talk about that, and man, is he going to tease some really, really good stuff that's going to be coming up on the show. And speaking of good stuff coming up on the show, I've certainly got it. I mean, yeah, we're going to be talking about Batwoman and Supergirl. We'll review those finales, but, I mean, the Snyder Cut's coming out. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Ruby Rose leaving Batwoman. There is some serious stuff to talk about this week, but you know... It is the big return for comics this week. Diamond is back, and so are some new books. So let's talk about them. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is a uh, writer, Ryan Parrott, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Doing our best to back the comeback, so drag out that long box. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And the return of Marvel Comics with Ironheart 2020 number one this week. Written by Vita Ayala and Danny Laurie. David Messina on the art. Mattia Iancono on the colors. VCs Jokata Magna on the letters. And Scan on the cover. Now, Riri's actually picking up a friend when a bunch of just AI cars just start to go insane. They start to go crazy. Now, being able to figure out exactly what happened is a bit more tricky because it's kind of against the law for Riri to be a superhero right now. And if you've been reading, I think it was Outlawed number one. That's the main reason why. But, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that's been going on in Iron Man 2020 as well and in the tie-ins. So this causes a lot of friction between Riri and her AI, which is pretty tense and pretty interesting, too, as as the story goes along. Now, if you've been reading Iron Man 2020 or the tie-ins, you know what's going on with Arno Stark in the AIs, and by the way, what's going on with Tony? And I use that name very, very loosely. But again, if you've been reading it, you know what I'm talking about. The tension between Riri and her AI, though, actually leads to kind of a major action that could have some pretty disastrous consequences going forward. Let's just say you could be feeding right into somebody's hands. That that much I can tell you now. If you're a fan of Riri's or you just have a or you're deep into the Iron Man 2020 story, this is likely going to be something that you'll certainly enjoy if you, especially if you've been enjoying what you've been reading so far. This is a little bit of a this is a little bit tougher Riri. It's a little bit of a different attitude than when we first saw her when, when her story first began and first came out years ago. So, a little bit different, a little bit more of an edge there. You You could read this story even if you're not caught up with the Iron Man 2020 story, but it kind of might lose its luster for you a little bit because it's better to kind of understand 
what else is going on. And I, and I realized that since, you know, new books have been gone for a while, you might need to go back and reread a little bit of some stuff to get caught up on and really appreciate what's going on here. The end of this issue, though, is really what makes this story interesting. The art was solid throughout. I mean, there was no doubt that you were going to get good art. All you had to do was look at the regular cover for this issue, and you knew that you were going to be in for some amazing art, even though, you know, Scott's not the cover, cover color, uh, not the interior artist, but still, I mean, it just gives you a pretty good indication. So, I mean, there were plenty of tame moments in this book. There was a lot of dialogue. So there wasn't a whole lot of, a lot of opportunities for the art to jump out, but I will say that there were a couple where they really, really took advantage of the opportunities that they were given. So this issue was kind of middle of the road for me. I'll certainly see where it goes in the next issue. But again, if this is if you're just a re-re fan or if you're deep into this Iron Man 2020 story, this is definitely one that you're going to want to add to the collection. And here's something that I had actually forgotten in all this craziness that was actually going to be coming, and that's Star Wars Adventures Clone Wars Battle Tales, number one from IDW and, of course, Disney Comics and Marvel. So Michael Morrissey is actually doing the writing here. Derek Charm, Adriana Florian, and Mario Del Penino on the art. Luis Antonio Delgado and Valentina Tadeo on the colors, and Jake M. Wood on the letters. Now, there's something going on in, in a faraway planet, and the Jedi Council sends three tr- three trusted Jedis to so- stop the Separatists from taking over another system. So here's the deal. If you know already, you know, I mean, if you're familiar with the Clone Wars story at all, you probably know which Jedi are going to be involved here. If we're talking about prequels, you know what Jedi are going to be involved. So they're actually going to the planet Hisin. And there's already a battle going on by the time that they get there. And and you get to see a lot of action in this book. And I do mean a lot. And there'll be some familiar things that you see and some maybe not so familiar things that you see. But there's really never a dull moment in this book as far as action is concerned, but we also get something really, really interesting. We get a sort of a backstory and, and somewhat of a connection between Anakin Skywalker and Captain Rex, which I think is very, very interesting. So if if you didn't know that that was there before, this book will kind of give you a little bit of an in- indication. You see how Anakin feels about these clone soldiers, for lack of a better way. Of putting them, so that's that's very interesting as well. And again, you're going to know who some of the major players are here, and who exactly these Jedi are looking for. So there was kind of a let's split up sort of moment. And when you find out who they're splitting up to go to go look for, it's like really, you guys aren't going to be all hands on deck for this. You're you're going to split up and have a couple of you go look for this person. Okay, you know, I guess you're a Jedi and you know what you're you know what you're talking about. But you find out at the end of this book that, you know, maybe it would have been a good idea to little get a little bit more help. And we'll see if that help actually ends up getting there in time. But again, if you know the story, does that kind of, you know, take the shine off of it a little bit? Does that take the mystery out of it? Because you, you know certain things that just aren't going to happen 
that will affect the, the that will affect the end of this story. I mean, you could make that argument, sure. But again, if you're just a Star Wars fan and, and you love just a ton of action, this book has got a lot of it. Plus, I've always been a big fan of Derek Charm's art. So anytime Derek Charm's doing a book and I'm even remotely interested in it, I'm going to pick it up just because I like Derek Charm's art. This is, you know, the Star Wars Adventures titles are supposed to be, you know, a little bit more on the for on the younger side. And other than the way some of the dialogue was presented, I didn't get that impression at all. I mean, this is definitely, to me anyway, an all-ages book that anyone could enjoy. And there's there's a lot of, there's plenty of intense battle moments in this book as well. So, I mean, there's already a lot going on here. And, and I just enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I tend to enjoy Star Wars things anyway. I'm one of the, I'm like a unicorn in that regard. And that if something Star Wars is coming out, I'm going to consume it and likely enjoy it. And that's not exactly typical of the fandom. But this one was really, really neat. And, and given the players involved and you're giving me a little bit of something new on the side as well, this is definitely one I'm going to be looking forward to reading each month. So throw this one in the poll box. Star Wars Ventures, Clone Wars Battle Tales, number one. It's going to do for what we're reading up next. Let's start our double review with a spoiler-filled review of the Batwoman season one finale. Let's do it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yo, yo, this is Cam Rush Johnson from the cast of Batwoman, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Things were cut a bit short in Gotham City, but did that final episode of Batwoman actually work as a finale? It's time and plenty of times gone by to do a spoiler-filled review of the Batwoman season one finale. I'm going to tell you right now off the get that we are not going to be talking about the Ruby Rose story in this segment. That will be happening in Nerd News a little bit later on. In the show, yes, I want to take a deep dive into Ruby Rose leaving the role as Kate Kane and Batwoman. So there's a little tease for you to keep on listening for that. But I just want to talk about this finale episode really quick. And I, I do, in case you don't know, I do a weekly TV co show, show on TV Co, the app where we do watch parties of the Arrowverse shows. And a couple weeks ago, when the whole hush thing was going down, I had said that, and again, major spoilers ahead. I'd said that, you know, I bet that Hush is going to want, Tommy Elliott's going to want Bruce Wayne's face, right? That that was my guess, and boy, did that turn out to be right at the end of this episode because that was, that was the big cliffhanger at the end of this episode and, and a great way to tease what's coming in Season 2, the return of Bruce Wayne, even though it's not Bruce Wayne, and most people don't know that, and will Kate know that it's not Bruce Wayne? Will Luke know that it's not Bruce Wayne. Who is going to figure it out first and how long is it going to take for them to figure it out? So that is something really, really interesting. But the only thing that bummed me out about that is I really hope that Hosh doesn't stop being Hosh because I think that just so much was added to the mix when you threw Hush out there along with Alice wreaking havoc. And now we've got a bunch of crazies from Arkham just all over the place. And we we saw the Titan in this episode. And man, this dude really, really packed a punch. And I mean, I know that it's hard when it's not a big name villain, right? Especially since this is the finale episode and Batwoman hasn't done a whole lot of villain, villain of the week stuff. 
but you see him rough up pretty much everybody, including Kate. And, I mean, he was ruthless. I mean, he's ripping people to shreds. And you see Kate get injured in this episode, which kind of made sense given the fact that Ruby Rose got injured on set in September doing some stunts. So, you know, she definitely could easily play the injured role in this particular episode. So that that almost seemed appropriate. But, you know, of course she's not going to sit on the sidelines, right? That's it's not going to happen. It's not going to work out. So, of course, she goes out there. And it look, here's the thing. That scene between Jacob Kane and Batwoman where it looks like they're going to work together to stop Titan and Mary gets involved. When Jacob Kane got that mad about Mary being involved with Batwoman, even though he made that deal with, with Batwoman, I'm like, yeah, something doesn't seem right about this deal. And it sure wasn't. When they finally when we when they finally tracked that guy down and they took him out, and the crows just took him out, too, by the way. They didn't even try to arrest him. And then they surround Batwoman, and you're thinking, no. No. I mean, even though it kind of felt like I saw this coming, no, this better not be happening. Not only did they try to take her in, or say that they were going to remember that it's war, Jacob Kane says. He fires a shot. I mean, Batwoman at this point, unarmed, standing there surrounded. She's really got nowhere to go. And Jacob Kane fires the first shot. And then the crows join in. Of course, the suit protects Kate. She's able to get out of there. But wow. I mean... Wow, I didn't think I could dislike Jacob Kane any more than I already did. And that just sealed the deal for me. I mean, forget it. I'm done with this dude. And, you know, it's maybe there'll be some sort of redemption later on down the line. But you still have to reconcile the fact that you opened fire on an unarmed, granted, vigilante. Totally get it, right? Totally understand. But she wasn't posing a threat at the time at all and guess what you you open fire with multiple crows agents on batwoman i'm just i can't be cool with that whether that's his daughter or not and even sophie started to question whether or not she wanted to stick around with the crows given that given the way that they were approaching things and and their tactics and speaking of sophie things with her and julia progressing but at the same time, now there's someone after Julia just as much as there as she is with Batwoman. So we get to see how that plays out in season two because that was that was one arc that we really didn't get a whole lot of, you know, movement on because of the shortened season that was supposed to have a few more episodes to go, right? So that that's one thing that we certainly didn't get a chance to get to. But one thing we did get to get to is the kryptonite story and i thought that, that was really interesting to, to find out that kryptonite is the thing that can penetrate the suit because i mean it makes sense right i mean it's certainly something that's that's strong enough and it certainly makes sense that that could be what could go through the bat suit i thought that they dragged out the whole can we destroy it thing a little bit too long but then you got the bombshell of remember Kara gives kate some kryptonite to keep just in case she steps out of line or becomes a villain or anything like that. And now you see, but here's the deal. When they tried to sell the, 
here's the only kryptonite that's left. You know, you got a show that's on right after you, Supergirl, where you were, well, we already know there's a lot more kryptonite than you think there is. So it's not like it's in scarce supply or anything like that. So I'm, that's one thing that seemed like a little like, you know what, really? Really? But if they truly feel that way, I mean, that's, you know, hey, be true to yourself sort of thing, right? So, so there's that going on. But I just thought that that was a little bit of a weird avenue to take with this storyline. But the main thing that happens, and this is another thing, I said this at the very beginning of the episode because you could kind of see how Mouse was starting to lose a little bit and Alice was hyper-focused on killing her sister. And their ideals started to diverge where to the point where Mouse actually threatens to leave Alice behind and go to the place that they always wanted to go to, which kind of, yeah, it's one of those things that you you see in shows and movies a lot. I made the Shawshank Redemption reference with Andy Dufresne in Red when, you know, say Wantaneo, that's where they were going to go, right? But you don't see, you see a little bit of a different outcome here because, and I, and I said this right at the beginning of the show, I said, I bet Alice kills Mouse. And then that's exactly what she ends up doing. She poisons him. And then she weeps over his dead body and she feels bad about it. But it was clear that Mouse was right about one thing. Her need for revenge was consuming her and was was changing her a little bit because she could have easily left with him, right? They they burnt the Alice in Wonderland book. That connection was, was gone now. You know, it's almost like a forget about the past and move on. And there's one thing in her past that she cannot move on from, and that is her sister and her family abandoning her, at least perceptually anyway, abandoning her. Is it's as if Alice feels that way and she's crazy, you know, there's not a whole lot else you can do. So you've got the Alice factor. You know Alice is gonna somehow blame Kate for Mouse's death, right? Even though she literally poisoned him. So you've got that. You've also got what's going on with, with Julia and who's chasing her. You've got Jacob Kane and the war on Batwoman, and he's trying to find a better bullet to shoot her with instead of trying to figure figure out a way to bring her in or any of these other crazies that are out from Arkham. And more importantly, you've got Kate dealing with the fact that she has to, that her dad is out to get her now, basically. Now, she, he doesn't know that that's his daughter underneath the cowl, but there's probably going to be some pretty emotional stuff coming up next season as it relates to that. But I got to tell you, I know that some have had very strong opinions about this show. I feel like start to finish one of the most solid seasons, debut seasons anyway, of an Arrowverse show that they've had. This show takes a lot of flack and whether or not that's going to change with the new Kate Kane and new Batwoman only time remains to tell that. But I got to tell you, I really, really enjoyed the Batwoman season one finale. Hopefully you did as well. And we already know we're getting a season two. So you want to listen to last week's show. We get into it a little bit there. That's going to do it for our, our first review. The season one finale of Batwoman up next. Going to keep it to the Arrowverse and keep it on the same night as well. We'll talk about season five finale of Supergirl next on the down and nerdy podcast. Hi, this is David Hamilton from Supergirl. Uh, you're listening to the down and nerdy podcast. It's hard to open your eyes with those obsidian lenses in, but we are going to do our best to navigate through the season six finale 
of Supergirl. Again, the shortened season. Going to be plenty of spoilers from here on out as I talk about this. So I'm just going to let you know that. And again, not going to recap the whole episode. I will say that it was great to have Lex Luthor in pretty much this entire season and how things kind of interweaved with Leviathan. Although I never really took Leviathan very seriously in this season. They just didn't seem... Like there was a whole lot, there was a whole lot of a threat. Now, when you had the trifecta of the gods in this episode, that definitely seemed like more of a threat. And we also found out that they are all answering to someone as well. So Jim Cooper is not at the top of the food chain, which I thought was really, really interesting revelation. I mean, you kind of got that sense anyway. But this was really the confirmation of, yeah, she is not the one that was at the top of Leviathan. And I think Lex was actually a little bit surprised about that as well. But but here's the deal. The way that that played out was really, really interesting. And you were trying to figure out, okay, is Lex with Leviathan or against Leviathan or a little bit of both? And as it turned out, Lex is just exactly what you think. He uses whoever he has to to get the means to his own end. And that's exactly what happened. And what we saw was, and Brainy, by the way, redeeming himself big time in this episode. Really, really redeeming himself. And and saving the day, really, when it looked like the heroes, of course, minus Kara, because she was off doing other things, but you're talking about Alex and Magan and 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 Jean and Dreamer. Brainy saves the day. He basically sacrifices himself to go into the Leviathan headquarters and bottle these gods. He goes old school. He definitely goes old school Brainiac and bottles these gods. And it was a pretty pretty baller move on his part. I must say it was very, very well done, and it felt redeeming for Brainy in a season where he sort of followed what the big brain told him to do, and that was help Lex, even though every bone in his body seemed to tell him not to do it. But I guess when the inhibitors came off, the gloves did as well, because it it really, really did not work out well. For the group of, of for the group of Leviathan, and I, I'll say this too. One other thing I thought they did really, really well in this episode was we remember the, the previous episode we see Lena coming to Kara's door. Basically, the the whole "I'm sorry, you were right. Lex is doing terrible things. I want to team up with you now and let's stop him." What I love is that. Kara kind of breaks her regular character here a little bit and that you kind of expect Kara to, you know, let bygones be bygones, open arms sort of thing. Oh, good. Maybe we can be friends again. And it ended up being exactly the opposite. Kara had a lot of pushback and Kara basically unloaded a bunch of things where she was basically, it seemed like she'd been tucking this stuff away for a while and just unloaded on Lena about how, you know, if you're looking for instance uh, for instant absolution, I'm not going to give it to you because here you think I did wrong to you. Here's all the stuff you did to me 
And I just cannot sit back and pretend like I'm okay with that. This was a major, major moment for Kara. And something like, it really seemed like not only did she need to get this off her chest, but once she did, the there just it seemed like more focus came back to Kara. And, and there was the kryptonite that she discovered not too long, that she discovered earlier in the season, was already being used against her. So they, there you've got Lena trying to build the kryptonite suit so Kara can help out in the battles. But as it turns out, you know, she's not the one that needed to do the helping, and it ended up being Brainy all along. So just the dynamic there between Lena and Kara, I think was one that you needed to give some sort of a resolution to, or at least, you know, push the envelope forward. But at the same time, the fact that she didn't just forgive her, I thought was major. I thought that was really, really great. Speaking of Alex, talked about her earlier. We get to see her super suit. Now, she doesn't have a code name or anything like that. And hopefully Cisco can take his time. He got till 20, 2021 at the earliest. Hopefully Cisco can take his time and come up with a really good name for Alex because I think she's going to need it. But I, I liked the suit. I liked the look. It was pretty, pretty great. I enjoyed it. So I hope we see more of that going forward. The other thing that, that kind of bugged me about this season was the Obsidian storyline. And of course, you know, you've got people logging in. This is, you know, the the experience of their of their lifetime. And then Kara has to go in there after them and tell them, hey, you need to get out of here because you're going to die. And she gives another one of those classic Supergirl speeches where she, you know, just gets in touch with the people and they they listen to her. They actually, she's actually able to talk millions of them out of the AI world and save millions of lives, which you can imagine pretty much angers Lex Luthor. So what you're looking at is the the cliffhanger for this is what's Lex's next move. His next next move is to take these bottled gods to his mother for some reason. And now it looks like they're going to get to work on something with, I'm sure, is going to be super ultra sinister I'm wondering if they're going to be using Jeremiah Danvers' body as some sort of weird cyborg Superman or maybe another brand new Metallo or something like that and using the material that are given to them from the gods and see where that goes. But obviously there were some ups and downs this season in Supergirl. The whole thing with Kara and William and that relationship just seemed really, really forced. I wasn't a fan of... Leviathan in this they never really seemed like legit enough of a threat for me and hey you know what maybe that's my problem maybe for me it's just I was expecting too much but I I also felt like you know this is kind of what you get when you're trying to just force in a villain that's you know there's not a whole lot of canon here as far as in the comics are concerned I mean this is kind of an organization that just came out in the comics. There's not a whole lot that we know about them. And it, it almost kind of showed, quite frankly. And then you've got Ramakan with with the with the Leviathan and he's, you know, rock chucking. And I just wasn't impressed, man. I mean, I, I know that he certainly, you know, caused some problems for Kara and for the team, but you know, by and large, they took him out pretty easily 
early on in the season. It wasn't until he got two buddies that were also gods until it actually seemed like a real threat. And then even that didn't last long. So we're going to find out who's at the top of the food chain here. And maybe I'll change my tune on that. But I mean, this was a good finale episode for this, but you know, given the fact that they actually had to end the season early, it just sort of worked out where there was a big cliffhanger at the end with Lex handing his mother the bottle and saying, you know, let's get to work. And you're thinking, getting to work on what? This just does not feel good at all. And, you know, finding out where Lena and Kara stand and where Lena stands in the group, that's still kind of, you know, up in the air as well. So there's plenty of conclusion that we got there, but plenty of stuff that's still up in the air that we will be able to tackle whenever the sixth season begins. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Supergirl, the season five finale up next. Remember, we're going to talk about Ruby Rose's Batwoman story and something major coming to HBO Max. Nerd News is next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Greg Rucka, comic book writer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You've heard the term persistence pays. Well, it certainly did this week. It's time for nerd news, and I'm going to admit it right now. This is news that I never actually thought I'd be reporting. I, I was. This was actually something I kind of, I, I wished it would go away because I never thought it would really be a reality, and now it is. I think you know where I'm going with this, and that is the confirmation that the Snyder Cut of Justice League, yes, released the Snyder Cut, after, what, like four years, has finally succeeded and the Snyder Cut will air on HBO Max. That is confirmed. This is not a rumor. This is not conjecture. It is a done deal. This was announced by Warner Media that it will be airing in 2021. Now, I'll get to what the reasons for that are here in a couple minutes. But this was actually announced by Zack Snyder during kind of the virtual watch party for Men of Steel that they had on social media. And, of course, in the statement, he was very thankful to HBO Max and Warner Brothers for the for supporting the Snyder Cut and, and for supporting the movement. And, and, and now it is actually going to happen. So we know the 21, 2021 release date is there. But the Hollywood Reporter kind of dug a little bit deeper, and Zack Snyder actually t- had a little chat with them and said that this will either be released as a full-on four-hour movie, or it'll be in six TV-style chapters. Snyder also said that what we saw in this Justice League movie that was actually released was only about a fourth of what he had going on. So Warner Brothers is going to spend another $20 million dollars to finish the Snyder Cut because they're, they're kind of getting the band back together with everybody so they can finish the score, get some final visual effects going on there. This is stuff that wasn't done. This is post-production work that was not done, keep in mind, because Snyder left the project after a tragedy happened in his family, and, and I certainly don't want to dredge that back up. You can look it up if you like, and Joss Whedon took over. So it remains... He says it's going to be an entirely new experience, and you know it's almost like you kind of you kind of have to say that if only a fourth of what we saw, if we only saw a fourth of what Zack Snyder planned from for his cut, then yeah, I guess it will be an entirely new experience. And I'm not even sure. Obviously, you feel like we're going to get a trailer 
for this at some point, right? But even in even in a trailer, I'm not sure that we'll ever actually be able to discern, you know, what would be different about it. And do you want that to even be revealed? So so what was it that we saw that was already that he had already planned? Was it the meetings, you know, where like Bruce Wayne's going out to recruit everybody? Is it was that part of it? Were there other little bits and pieces? There were part of that as well that weren't like major parts of the storyline. And I remember the the rumors are for the Snyder Cut that, you know, it had Dark Side in it. You know, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter show up. You've also got more Cyborg involved in this. So, I mean, you understand why fans were excited about it. But I, I, I think that part of the, I don't know, just eye rolling on the other side of this whole release the Snyder Cut movement was... For me, it was, you know, it seems like everybody bashed Zack Snyder for everything that he did in the DC movie universe up until him leaving Justice League. People not really liking that movie either and wanting to see what he could have done with it. It's like, you haven't liked anything he's done up to this point. If you haven't, then why why do you all of a sudden want to support this? Just because you didn't like this either? And then there's a school of thought of, well, you know, are you going to like anything that they do sort of thing? So... I think that for for someone like me who just kind of wanted the Snyder Cut movement to go away, it was like, okay, first of all, they're never going to show this. Second of all, you know, even if they do, you're probably not going to be happy with it anyway, so what difference does it make? So that was the eye rolling there. And I will say, as, as callous as it might sound, but I'm going to go ahead and say it out loud, is that, you know, Hollywood's losing money during the coronavirus pandemic with things being shut down and having to move release dates and this is a big launch for HBO Max that's coming up this coming week on May the 27th. And I get that, you know, this isn't coming out on May the 27th, but it might make more people jump on board to HBO Max early than than maybe they would have because they just want to subscribe to it now. So they just have it when the Snyder Cut comes out. That could happen. So Hollywood is finding unique ways to make more money. And I get that this isn't a theatrical release, but tell me, that when this comes out in 2021, that there aren't going to be more people subscribing to HBO Max because of this. There are going to be people that will subscribe to HBO Max just for the Snyder Cut. And you can say that that can't be true all you want. It's going to happen. So you have to think about that. And if it wasn't this, you know, if the pandemic never happened and and all these movie studios weren't losing all this money and you weren't trying to find creative ways to push your product and get your name out there, would we have seen the Snyder Cut if this hadn't happened? I don't know that we would have. I honestly think that the the pandemic and everything that's come as a result of it with, with the social distancing and theaters, you know, not being open and when they are open, there's going to be, you know, limited capacity there. So you're still looking at dollars being lost. And again, even though this isn't a theater experience, you're looking at a creative way to make more money by driving more subscribers to your streaming service. And numbers talk too. If there's a giant increase in the number of subscribers because of this, that's going to make a difference. And people see that something is popular and that makes them want to jump on board. Netflix used that model very successfully to grow their product in the early going of their streaming portion of their service, never mind the DVDs and things like that. So I just think that I'm not sure we would have seen this 
otherwise. So I'm just at this point, now that I know we're going to see it and this is going to happen, I am excited for it. I, I'm very interested to see how it's different, how it's going to be presented. And I liked the, the, the Justice League that we've already seen. I did. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. But there was still plenty to love about it as far as I'm concerned. And now knowing that we're going to get something that's supposed to be an entirely new experience, and I didn't think we'd get another new Justice League for a long, long time, another new Justice League movie, and we're going to. It's going to be the same movie, but different. I get it, but it's going to be another Justice League movie, and and I don't see how that's necessarily a bad thing. Here's something that was maybe just as shocking, quite frankly, also staying in the DC Universe this time on the TV side, and that was that Ruby Rose is leaving Batwoman after just one season. That's right. The lead actress in the series the, that plays Batwoman and Kate Kane leaving. This, of, of course, was first reported by The Hollywood Reporter as well. And I'm not going to read the statements from both sides. They were, they were very you know, grateful on both sides. It seemed, everybody was praising everybody, whether it be Ruby Rose praising everyone in the show or vice versa. I'm not going to go ahead and, and, and do that. I, I will say that the the role is going to be recast. The Warner Brothers Television has already come out with that. They said that we're, we're going to recast it. And they are going to be, quote, looking for a member of the LGBTQ community to fill the role again. So that can either, you know, that can either, you know, narrow down the list or expand it depending on how you look at things. So that seems to be the direction that they're going to go now. Things haven't been easy for Ruby Rose since she's been cast as Batwoman. She took a lot of backlash right when she was cast and made her quit Twitter. And she she just there just seemed to be an uncomfortableness about, you know, stepping out in public to discuss this show. And you have to understand that given the vitriol that she that she faced in the very beginning. She also suffered a very serious injury on set and actually faced possible paralysis. If I if I remember correctly, that accident happened in September. Now, according to Variety, who, who dug a little deeper on this, they said that that injury was not a part of why she decided to leave the show and that actually, and this again, according to Variety, saying that it was the long hours of being the lead in the series that caused some friction between Ruby Rose and the production staff. Now, again, this is Variety's report, and and you know, and nobody, as of me recording this, has come out and confirmed or denied any of that. And and I'm not sure we'll get conf- confirmation or denial on that. I think that it just kind of feels like everybody's ready to move on at this point. Now that the decision has been made, now that what's done is done, everybody's kind of ready to move on. Ruby Rose may be ready to move on. To a different project that either maybe, you know, isn't as physically demanding or doesn't take up as much of her time. You know, however she wants to, whatever she wants to do with her career, it's her career. If that's what she wants to do, then that is her prerogative. And then from the production standpoint, you know, you get a fresh start, basically, with a new lead. There there were plenty of fans that didn't enjoy Ruby Rose as Kate Kane or Batwoman for, for whatever reason. And maybe they feel like, you know, you might, you maybe you've got a chance to get somebody better. I thought Batwoman had a fantastic first season. 
not necessarily because of Ruby Rose. There, She was part of it. But it was the larger cast that made this show so good. And the writing, I thought, was very, very well done. It was the it was the 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 cast as a whole and the writing that made this first season good. It wasn't solely Ruby Rose that made this show. Yes, she was the lead character, but without so many of the, many of these other characters balancing out the show, it just wouldn't have worked. And you can't be one character carrying the load. Like Grant Gustin is perfect as Barry Allen in The Flash, one of the best castings the Arrowverse has ever had. But that show still doesn't work without characters like Harrison Wells, played by Tom Cavanaugh, Cisco, played by Carlos Valdez, Daniel Panabaker's Caitlin Snow. We don't have the success of The Flash. Joe West, Jesse L. Martin, you don't have the success of the show without that. You don't. So Batwoman is no different. So without these supporting characters doing what they do, the show would not have worked as well. So yes, this is a big piece to lose, but at the same time, this is not a make or break thing for this show, in my opinion. Life will go on for Batwoman in season two, but the the big question is going to be what's the chemistry going to be like because that is a major factor in all of this. A couple of trailers that I want to talk about, and the first one is The Old Guard from Netflix, going to be coming out on July the 10th. This, of course, based on the graphic novel story from Greg Rucka and company. And it stars Charlize Theron. And basically what we have here is a as a group of mercenaries that have this mysterious inability to die. So they're kind of very careful about not calling it immort- immortality necessarily. They just can't die. So let, let's just call it that. And these mercenaries are either protecting the mortal world or not, depending on your perspective. It's like when they send the trailer, they said, you know, are we the good guys or the bad guys? You know, it depends on the year sort of thing. And, of course, we see Charlize Theron's Andy, who's the the main leader of the group. But then we see we see Nylee. I think that's how you pronounce the name. It's Kiki Lane. Who's, who's playing this character. She's the new recruit, right? She's the newest soldier. So we're going to get that, you know, we're going to get that newness, but we're also going to get the seasoned group, kind of like in The Boys, where you had Huey coming into The Boys, whether willingly or not. Everybody else was already a member of the group, and he was the newbie of the group, so you got to experience, you know, the, the experience part and the newbie part. I feel like we're going to get a similar vibe to that here in The Old Guard, where you've got where you've got Nile or Nile, however you want to pronounce her name. I don't remember. I don't remember them saying it in the trailer. But either way, you're going to get that, and you're also going to get the experienced portion, the, the experienced members of the team. Now, we find out later in the trailer. There's plenty of action in this, and you get to see that. But one of the main parts of the story is going to be that somebody wants to capture this crew and replicate their abilities and monetize these powers because I mean think about it if you could sell immortality or I should say the inability to die to the highest bidder I think that there'd be a lot of people that would be willing to put up some serious cash for that so you kind of see the push and pull of that and them trying not to be caught and and I like the fact that this trailer points out that yeah it would be hide to, hard to hide in the world that we live in today you saw you see this group of women take a selfie and Andy gets caught up in the selfies, so she offers to take their picture so she can delete the other one while she has their phone. 
So it's just little things like that. I like that that's a, it's subtle, but that's a part of things, right? When you're trying to hide or you're trying to stay out of sight. So I love the angle. I will say I'm not familiar with the graphic novel. Haven't read it. It's one of those things where you go, oh, this is based on a Greg Rucka story. I'm a fan of Greg Rucka. So maybe now I go back and read it before I see the movie. Certainly got time. It comes out on July the 10th. So super, super interested in this and Netflix killing it with the movies right now and even more comic book adaptations on the way too. I just love what Netflix has going got going on right now. With us all staying home and what a what with us all staying home, what a great time for them to be putting out some of their best work right now. So bravo to them. Really quickly, if you were a fan of the Alienist season one on TNT, it was that, you know, disturbing and tense detective type story, a period piece that was set in 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 very early America, as far as the, as far as, well, early modern America, I guess is the best way that I could put it. But season two is going to be called Angel of Darkness, and that will premiere on July the 26th. And what we're dealing with here is it's another case with kids, right? So you've got Sarah, who is played by Dakota Fanning. She's got her own private detective agency now. She's kind of got a brand new case where she's going to be looking for an infant, kidnapped infant daughter of a Spanish consular. Now, again, this is, again, we're dealing with kids. And I mean, the first season, they were dealing with, with people who were murdering young children, if I recall. And there was a lot, and I don't want to spoil too much, but there was a lot of disturbing elements to what was going on there. And the, the, the way that their investigation was led down, it was just brutal but what this is it's it's almost the dawn of the age of crime scene investigation and the science of that is really brought out in the alienist and I, it's so so interesting and of course you know Dakota Fanning playing the female detective there and it's certainly not easy during these times but Daniel Bruhl who plays our alienist it, you almost couldn't ask for anybody better to play the alienist and then you've of course got Luke Evans who's now a reporter for the New York Times, so you've got you know your your crime scene person, you've got your detective, and you've got a reporter, and they're kind of all working together. It's it's almost like a it's it's almost like a team, but not a team, right? They they find a way to work together, but there's also it looks like from this trailer going to be some tension within the team. Not as much tension in the team in season one. It was more of like almost trying to prove themselves, sort of thing, almost to each other. And people around them to get the job done, which of course they did to a certain extent. But in in this, you get to see, you know, they're established as friends, but they haven't seen, according to the trailer, haven't seen each other and been together in a while. So they have to almost refamiliarize themselves with each other, sort of thing. And you get to see there are some tensions. We don't get to see why necessarily. You certainly don't want to spoil that, but there are going to be some tensions within the group. It looks like. We could finally see Sarah and John get together, maybe, possibly. There was a little bit of a tease there. Is that actually going to happen? We'll have to wait and see. I mean, like, officially together, right? So uh, there's certainly a whole lot to look forward to in this. You've, go, of course, got, I think I, I think I called him John earlier. Dr. Dr. Kreitzler is who uh, Daniel Brule plays, the, the alienist is Dr. Kreitzler, not not John Moore. So I you know just, just gonna fix that for you right now. But I, I will say that this it, it, uh, even though it was almost uncomfortable to watch at times, it is such an amazing 
period piece and you're dealing with with you know yellow journalism in this as well you're dealing with corrupt institutions you're dealing with you know income inequality and a whole bunch of different things and that's just the stuff that's written in the synopsis there's so many layers that are so so amazing in the alienist and i cannot wait to dive in to this second season so there will be a review of that coming up at some point i know we we reviewed the premiere of season one so we'll dive into this one as well really quickly deadline reporting that sony wants to make another spider-man spinoff this time with jackpot and you're saying who exactly exactly my point and Mark Guggenheim, by the way, going to write the script. You know who he is more than you know who Jackpot is. Now, Jackpot's been mostly a villain, sometimes an ally for Spider-Man in the comics. Just not very well known. There's actually a couple of different Jackpot characters in Marvel Comics. I'm not even sure I want to get much much more into it than that. You've already got, you know, you know you've got Craven the Hunter movie coming. You've got a Silk movie possibly on the way and it feels like so many others just stop it stop it sony stop it chill not every spider-man character deserves their own movie stop it i you know it's a female lead and i think that that's fantastic okay i think we should see more female-led superhero movies just not this one not yet you got to get there you have to establish a line of success before you can start reaching for a character like Jackpot to get their own movie. Venom succeeded. Good for you. Venom 2 will probably do well. Let's see how Morbius does. Let's see how Craven the Hunter does. Let's see how a Silk movie might do and things like that. Before you get to characters like Jackpot. That would be like if Marvel decided in the MCU to jump into Guardians of the Galaxy in Phase 1. You know, like you you had a couple successful movies, and they go, all right, well, you know, let, let's try something. Let's try Guardians of the Galaxy. They didn't do that. They waited until they knew they had a successful formula before jumping into characters that not everybody knows. And I know that's an almost an apples and orange comparison between Jackpot and Guardians of the Galaxy. What I'm saying is is that Guardians of the Galaxy was, at the time, a risk for Marvel and the MCU, but they built up such a great track record, and they did so well with the casting and things like that, of course, that it wasn't as much of a risk. Jackpot, as a movie, is a risk, period, because people like names that they recognize when it comes to their superhero movies, and I can almost guarantee you there's not a soul in the general movie-going public public that's ever heard of jackpot if you're a deep cut comics fan and you really like jackpot and the arcs that she's been in good for you glad for you but you're probably one of a handful of people who feel that way and we don't give solo movies to handful to 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 characters with handfuls of fans okay i like dr fate i like red tornado in the dc movie universe in, and excuse me, in the DC universe, does that mean I think they should get their own movies? Absolutely not. I'd like to see Dr. Fate show up on Stargirl at some point or something like that. But that doesn't mean that I think they deserve their own movies because I realize how much of a niche those characters are for certain fans. And you love them for certain reasons. Stop announcing and stop announcing all of these movies. too. We don't even know when we're going to be able to see Morbius 
Never. I know it has a new release date. We don't know when any of these release dates are really going to happen. Just stop it. Pump the brakes on all of these Spider-Man spinoffs and these movie announcements until you know for sure, or at least a reasonable assumption, that you're going to have some success from more than just a single spinoff character before you start digging deep. That's going to do it for Nerd News up next. Speaking of Stargirl, we're going to be talking about Stargirl with the Dragon King himself, Nelson Lee, joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Cameron Beacon Dova from Gotham, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, I know that you're as excited and as hyped as the premiere of at the premiere of DC Stargirl as we are. So you know what we decided to do this week? We decided to tease ahead a little bit and talk about one of the villains that we're going to be seeing in episode four of the show, the Dragon King himself. It is Nelson Lee. Nelson, how are you doing, man? I am doing great. Happy to be here. Excited to talk about this. All right. So now, Nelson, you're certainly no stranger to the world of comic book TV. I mean, you were Shen in the Blade TV series about 10 years ago. So, well, actually, I was longer than that. What was it like to jump back into the genre this time, though, with DC Comics? Uh, it's, you know, it, it's so much fun. I remember the first time it was like a dream come true getting to play uh, in a Marvel property doing Blade. And oddly enough, not even oddly, it was with uh, Jeff Johns again and with Neil Jackson. So it's a That's bit true. of a reunion on this one. Yeah, I know. Jumping back in like 16 years basically uh, ago. But yeah, it's, a, it's always so much fun to dive into these worlds and especially this world that Jeff's created, you know, and the Dragon King is such an immensely layered, complex character. And, you know, it's it's always fun to be a villain. You know, I was the good guy in uh, Blade, and it's good to get back into the bad guy realm. You know, you mentioned how layered the Dragon King is. He's actually kind of best known as like a World War II era villain, but obviously we're dealing with modern era here. So how did it feel to kind of update the character a bit for today's world? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the character, I mean, Dr. Ito is about 100 years old, so he's been around the block a little bit. And, you know, that's going to get all teased out uh, throughout uh, seeing how he's uh, able to keep himself alive like that. But, you know, I think there's also, when you think about it, you know, obviously he first appeared at All-Star Squadron and then kind of really was made very, very brought out by Jeff in uh, the Stargirl uh, series to make him a, a, one of the main villains against Stargirl. And so I think we're just kind of running with that. And, and, you know, while we're still taking a lot of cues from the original comics, a lot of it is, is new, and that's where it's really exciting. It's, it's great to get uh, take an old character from a DC property and then kind of bring it into the real world, and it gives you that kind of flexibility, and it, that's the excitement of it. You know, we're getting to play with this old character in this unbound kind of uh, new territory with Stargirl. So now, if it's me, if I'm casting a comic book show, I'm thinking, okay, what about the suit? What's going on with the suit? And one thing we've actually seen from trailers and first looks and things like that is a look at Dragon King's suit. So it seems pretty comics accurate to me. So what did you think when you saw it for the first time? Uh, spot on, dude. Like, I'm telling you, like, I geeked the hell out when I first saw it. You know, LJ and, L- and all the Super Suits team, they're just uh, fantastic. And, you know, we're, we're going in, like, in this over the course of months, I'm going in, trying on. And, you know, we have all this uh, reference art and I'm like, you know, obviously I'm sure everyone loves their suit. I am like just absolutely in love with mine. I think they nailed it down to every detail, down to every blood splotch. Uh, Like it's, it's incredibly layered and hot. It's very hot. I'm sure. It's very difficult to get it. (laughs) It's, you know, it's very difficult to do normal things, but it's worth it. It's so cool. Like I can't wait for the fans to see it. I got I like the little teases that have been I'm great I'm grateful that they've shown that because at least it gives you 
uh, something to kind of hold on to until he shows up. But it's going to be so cool, and I'm so proud of it. You're also one of the few villains on the show that could safely go outside right now. So there's that. You got that going for you. Exactly. I, I was ahead of the curve. There you, I go. Knew I there you go. Forget flattening the curve. You were ahead of it. Let's just do that. Exactly. <laughs> that's what a hundred. That's what a hundred years of living. Will yes. Give you. There you go. Take it. Take notes, kids. Take notes. So we were like you were saying. We don't actually see Dragon King until episode four. So I know you can't say much, but just what do you think makes him so dangerous? Other than that, you know, longevity of life. I mean, I think the great thing about Dragon King's character is that there is so much mystery. There is so much mystery as to like who he is, what what does he want, you know, what is his ultimate goal, and also like there's the dynamic of his daughter, you know, uh, there's the dynamic of uh, Cindy, uh, and that's the interesting uh, thing. And I think the danger of him is he's been around forever, and he's been just laser focused on kind of domination and just completely making himself better weapon and what that means. And it's, it's a, I think that's the danger of him. He's been brooding uh, underground for a long time, coming up with this plan. And now he's finding the perfect era and these perfect uh, companions to do this, to, to do the plan, to implement it. Talking to Nelson Lee from DC Stargirl, plays Dragon King. Of course, you'll see him in episode four, but you can watch the show every Tuesday on The CW and every Monday as well on DC Universe. Now, since yeah. you mentioned Cindy, by the way... Some a lot of comic book fans like myself knew right away, but how many people do you think have caught on that we've already seen Cindy on this show? I mean, look, it's obviously it's one of those things. It's uh, no one, uh, anyone who's a comic book fan knows this, knows the fact. But you know, I think a lot of people will not uh, know this. So you know, it's a uh, <laughs> it's one of those things uh, that you could totally figure out. It's it's already out there. It's been written a bunch of times. But yeah, I'm I'm hoping that that connection isn't completely, and it isn't, uh, clear until uh, later on. And I think that's the payoff. Right? Even if you do know it, I think it's still awesome uh, because it's so interesting. It's such an interesting connection between the two worlds. You have this like, completely layer, uh, you know, Dragon King just hiding out in his lair, concocting his uh, world takeover plans and his daughter in high school. It's just an interesting uh, connection between the two worlds. No, I think it's uh, the payoff will still be there, no matter uh, if you know it or not. Oh, I'm counting on it, man. I am absolutely counting on it. Now, when you know you're, that you're not coming in until episode four, you know your character's not showing up until later on in the series, how much are you locked in to the first few episodes before that? Oh, yeah, no, no. I mean, for me, and I guess it depends on everyone's, you know, everyone approaches stuff differently. I like to know everything, even though, yes, of course, uh, my story begins at a later date. Uh, I want to know exactly. And, of course, just geeking out, I want to I be there anyway. Like, I was, mm-hmm. I just want to be on set all day, <laughs> every day, even when I'm not shooting, just to watch everything. Because it's so much fun to watch all the amazing hard work that everyone's putting in. And then also just to see, like, I, it's hard not to giggle every time I saw someone in a super suit. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> like, like no it's doubt. So, yeah. uh, it's just awesome. And because it's so amazing. But yeah, but then you see it on screen. It's even crazier with all the effects and the coloring. And oh, my God, it's a it's it's uh, it's it's hard not to get excited. And it's hard not to try to be and take in every part of the show while you're there. So, yeah, no, I, I read everything. <laughs> One of the things I really love about the show, too, is and the, and the comics as well, is that normally, you know, when you see heroes and villains in these epic battles, right, it's in a big city. So do you feel like having these showdowns in, like, a sleepy little town like Blue Valley, Nebraska, is one of the things that makes the show so unique? Absolutely. You know, because one of those relatable things, right? It's okay, Blue Valley could be anywhere. 
and you know that's I think the the point of it, and I think that's relatability of it. And I think the great thing about the show is it does have that universality. It's got this uh, story of this young girl trying to find a place in this new town, and then you have this underground uh, kind of all these secrets lurking. Uh, you know, just uh, like every small town has secrets, uh, and I think that's the great thing. And our secrets happen to be a little bit have a little bit more of a devious and super superhero uh, kind of tilt to it. But uh, that's the great thing about it. I love that. You know, Sleepy Blue Valley has a lot of secrets. Absolutely, man. Now, even though even one episode of episode, and we've already met a few members of the Injustice Society already, and you get to see the first epic battle action in like the first few minutes. I always told people, I said, don't miss the first so five minutes. Cool. Don't miss the first five minutes. Oh, my minutes. God, it's Look the best. Out. So, in your opinion... It's the best. I mean, yeah. In your opinion, seeing all that, in your opinion, who's the most dangerous member of that group? You know, obviously, uh, Icicle is the one that kind of takes takes out uh, Starman in the beginning sequence. But, you know, Grundy is pretty scary and awesome in that. You know, you don't want him to get a hold of you. As long as you can outrun or outfly Grundy, you're, you'll be okay. But, yeah, I mean, they all have, uh, every one of the ISA have their own kind of strengths. You know, you got the crazy uh, abilities of Tigers. You have just, you know, the strength of Sportsmaster, the awesome kinetic, uh, telekinetic uh, abilities of Brainwave. And, of course, you got, uh, you know, Frosty over there. Just throwing icicles at everybody. <laughs> no doubt, man. I, it's it's a hard thing to choose from. I mean, when you see Grundy running in, in that first episode, I'm like, oh. dude, look out. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think about, like, who would I be scared, most scared of, like, running at me? And it would be Grundy. <laughs> right, because he's gigantic. This is, like, the best Grundy that I think I've seen on screen. It's like, oh, whoa, okay, that that's that's accurate. And, by the way, run faster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> must run faster. Must run faster. <laughs> I mean, he almost caught up to a flying car, so that, that should he tell did. you kind of all you need to know that's right it. there. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Nelson, we were talking about, you know, coming up in Episode 4, that's when we'll see the Dragon King for the first time. But even at that point, Courtney's still going to be very new to the hero game and using the cosmic staff. So do you think that makes her seem like less of a threat or is the staff itself enough for Dragon King to take her seriously? I mean, I think regardless, anyone that can wield the power of the cosmic staff is someone to take seriously. And I think because, and I think the, the way the Dragon King's brain works is he's just so super curious about how this is possible. He would love to just dissect her to figure out how, what makes her tick and what makes the cosmic staff take to her. You know, that's the thing. And I think absolutely he takes it seriously. And I think in the beginning, perhaps some of the ISA thinks she's just a kid. But uh, I think slowly we learn that she's a formidable opponent, even in the beginning. So, Nelson, before I let you go, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't switch gears here for a second and talk about the live-action Mulan movie. Of course, you got to play the Chancellor in that coming up. Yeah. So talk about what it was like to be on that set and how excited you are for fans to finally see this movie. Oh, I mean, it's it's unreal. And it's been a real bummer that we couldn't release it earlier. But, you know, obviously this thing is affecting everybody. Uh, and it's more important to be safe. But, yeah, no, it was the most one of the most amazing experiences of my life to be a part of that uh, movie. It was just so epic in scope, in ambition. You know, the this is an ancient 500 uh, AD story that has continued and thrived throughout time because at its core, it's about family. It's about honor. And I think... The way that Nikki and Disney and everyone brought it together, it's so beautiful and I can't wait for everyone to see it because I think it just strikes every perfect tone. It carries it into the modern world. It pays homage to the old, uh, older Disney uh, Mulan, 
but it's its own thing. And I think it's such a timely movie, so beautiful, and I cannot wait for the audience to see it. Yeah, I think everyone's going to love it. So kind of piggyback off that really quickly, like you said, these are kind of crazy, uncertain times right now. And just your opinion, would, how much of a bummer would it be if we do not get to see this movie in theaters and we had to see it at home? It would be a huge bummer. You know, it's one of those things, uh, you know, obviously we're slated right now for July 24th. That's our new plot. And we're hoping really, you know, all fingers and every toes crossed that that will somehow alleviate enough for us to go to theaters uh, safely, of course, so with face coverings and everything else. But, you know, it's one of those things. If, if we can't do it, it's a bummer, but that's the way it is. And, you know, we'll, we'll regroup and we'll figure out how to, you know, capitalize watching at home. But yeah, it's one of those films. These, that film is made for consumption in a big theater. You know, you want to see that. I mean, we were lucky enough to see that in the theater March 9th on our world premiere just before the world shut down, but it was epic and it's so beautiful. And yes, it'll still translate on your couch, but yeah, I'm hoping that uh, everyone can get out there in theaters and see it still. Well, the good news is you've got plenty of episodes of DC's Stargirl to tide you over <laughs> until then. So just watch Nelson Lee every Tuesday at, nine, at 8 o'clock Eastern Time on the CW. You can also watch it before that, by the way, on Mondays on the DC Universe app. Make sure you're watching every episode of DC Stargirl. You're not going to want to miss any of them, even leading up to seeing this guy. It's Nelson Lee, the Dragon King. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much. And everyone, you should watch DC Universe because you're going to get 10 extra minutes that gets cut out of every CW app. So watch both. <laughs> I know you were probably already looking forward to the next episode of Stargirl, but I mean, after hearing Nelson Lee talk about what, you know, what might be coming in episode four with the Dragon King, I can't freaking wait. For episode four now but we've only got episode two coming up which you can watch first monday on dc universe and then again on the cw network you do get a little bit extra stuff in the dc universe episodes or at least you did in the first episode anyway i'm not trying to sway you one way or the other but that that is just one thing to factor in bottom line is i, I think that things are really going to pick up when we see the dragon king in episode four in, in what's already going to be an amazing season of Stargirl. I can just tell. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Nelson Lee for joining me this week. If you want more about Stargirl, there's plenty on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can even check out our review of the first episode. It's up on our website right now. Also, follow along on social media, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. We're posting some photos from Stargirl up there from time to time. Also, follow on Facebook at Down and Nerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.